Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are in Proverbs chapter 11. You may turn there. We will get there eventually. Let me introduce you to a couple of Hebrew words and Hebrew concepts. We're going to start with the word ta'ab. Ta'ab means to loathe something, to morally detest it, to abhor something. And the feminine active participle of that word is toeba. Now, the B and the V phonic sound are interchangeable, so you can say toeva, and you're saying the same thing. That word means or is translated as something that is an abhorrence, something that is disgusting to God, translated very often as abomination. We're going to get some sense of what this word abomination really means. The first place that you find it is actually when Moses is talking to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh is saying, well, you can sacrifice to your God within our land. You don't have to go three days journey into the desert to do that. But in Exodus 8, Starting at verse 26, Moses said, It's not right for us to do so, for we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? So we must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to our Lord. So that gives you some idea what this word toevah means. It means something that is abominable, so much so that if we were to do it in Egypt, they would kill us for that. Well, then God picks up that concept as he's giving the law to Israel. He explains that there are things that are just abominations to him, things that he just will not put up with, things that turn his stomach. And then we read in Leviticus 18.21, you shall not give any of your offspring and offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord God, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is toyovah. It is an abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal or be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with that. That is a perversion, for the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought this punishment on you so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you will keep my statutes and my judgments. You shall not do any of these toyavah, any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien that sojourns among you. That would be the God fearers for the men of the land who have been before you, have done all of these abominations, these toyavah, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will spew you out should you defile it. 
as it has spewed out the nation that has been here before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, these persons who do so will be cut off from among their people. Do you get some sense of how much God abhors everything that he designates as Toyavah? Everything that he says is an abomination, is enough to get you killed over, is enough to get you driven out of Israel over. And it's important stuff. It's bad stuff. It's, it's the sexual stuff, the sexually impure stuff. It's idols, having idols in the land. These are all Toyavon. Deuteronomy 7 says, the graven images of their gods, you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet their silver or their gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, or you will be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord. So idol worship, having an idol personally, you shall not bring an abomination, a toy of awe into your house. These are things that God is really upset about. These are the things that God very clearly says, these things are enough to get you killed, enough to get you driven out of the land. Don't be like this. Don't engage in any idol worship. Don't give your children to be burned to the idols of the people that were in this land. I drove them out of the land because of their abominations. So don't be like them. Deuteronomy 13, 13 says, some worthless men have gone out from you and have seduced the inhabitants of the city saying, let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known. Then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly It is true, and the matter is established, that this, chasing after other gods, is an abomination. You shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. If somebody from a strange city comes in and tells you to come after a foreign god, are you getting some sense yet? Of what it means when God says, Toyavah. He means this is not to be done. Stick with me, I'm going somewhere. This is bad stuff. This is men laying with men like they would lay with a woman. This is bestiality. This is the stuff that God says, never let this be named among you. Deuteronomy 22.5 mentions cross-dressing. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on women's clothing, for whoever does these things is toyava, an abomination to the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 23, 17 says, None of the daughters of Israel shall be cult prostitutes, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog, which is the male cult prostitute, You'll never bring that into the house of the Lord your God as any kind of votive offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Okay, yes, yes, cult prostitution, male or female, that would definitely be toy of all. Yes, men acting like women, women acting like men, yes, that would definitely be toy of all. Deuteronomy 24.3 gets into marriage and divorce. If a man has a wife, gives her a bill of divorcement, she leaves the house and then she marries another man. Starting at verse 3, we read, And if the latter husband, the one she remarried to, turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, 
or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, that first husband, who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled, since she's been with another man, for that is toyavah, that is an abomination before the Lord. Deuteronomy 27.14 says, The Levites then are going to answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image. That is an abomination, toyavah to the Lord. The work of the hands of craftsmen, and they set it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Okay, I'm going somewhere here. You get some sense of how bad this is? You get in some sense of the things that God says, I won't have it. This makes me sick. Keep this out of Israel. And these are the things that when we read it, we would all agree. Yes, those are terrible things. Those are abominable things. And then you get to Deuteronomy 25, 15, and you read, You shall have a full and a just weight. You shall have a full and a just measure, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord God has given you. For everyone who does these things, having an unjust weight, and everyone who acts unjustly, is toy of awe to the Lord your God. Well, that's exactly where Proverbs chapter 11 starts. So when you see Solomon yank out the word toy of awe right here at the beginning, I want you to give some sense of how bad he is saying unjust measures, unjust weights really are. Chapter 11, verse 1, a false balance is toy of awe to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Okay, now what are we talking about here? Because a minute ago, we all understood and agreed, oh yeah, cross-dressing bad, okay, yeah, well, homosexual, got it, yeah. Bestiality, definitely, we don't want that in the land, okay, definitely. Uh, foreign gods, idols, anything like that, burning your children, okay, oh right, don't do that. <laughs> but then, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. What is Solomon talking about? Well, it used to be, before there was coinage everywhere, if you were going to trade with somebody, barter with somebody, you would agree that you would give them such and such a weight of whatever you had, say you had some kind of grain or something, you were going to trade it. Well, you would then trade that for such and such weight of, say, berries or something else that you needed. And so Solomon is saying it is important that you are honest in the way you conduct your business with each other. And if you are dishonest in the way you conduct your business so that you end up cheating somebody else by having a weight that's a little bit too heavy or a little bit too light, and then you use that cunningly so that you end up on the better end of the deal, so that you're cheating somebody else so that you can get more, that is as toyavah as all the cross-dressing homosexual, bestiality, idol worship, it's just as bad. God says it is important to treat people fairly in your business. 
And a just weight, a balanced weight, a true weight, is a delight to the Lord. So you want to make God happy? You've just found out one way you can do it. Treat people fairly. Treat people justly. Treat people in such a way that they're getting a fair deal out of it. We have a common phrase these days that is win-win. That when two people enter into a negotiation, if they both come away happy, they've both come away with what they need, what they wanted, what they entered into the agreement in order to get, we call that a win-win. Well, that's kind of the idea here. If it's a win-lose, God says, Toyava, you've cheated somebody. But if you've treated them fairly, a fair and a just weight is a delight. Okay, that's how I decided to begin this evening with the Toyava section, because this chapter of Proverbs is going to also close with another repetition of Toyava. So that gives you some sense of the bookends of this whole chapter. The chapter starts with the benefits, the personal benefits of your own integrity, what it is to be just, to be honest with people. And then he moves into the benefits of the society, to have righteous people in the society. And then he moves into what it is to be generous, what it is to treat people right, to be kind in the way that you operate your money. And that's kind of the whole chapter. By the end of the chapter, he has said again that it is toy of awe to treat people evil. And that's the outline of the chapter, so we can all go home now. <laughs> or we could take the time to actually go through each of these individually. Is that what you'd prefer? Yes. All right. Chapter 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor with the humble is wisdom. How many times have we seen this? You've heard me say it over and over through the years. The most common repeated sin in the Bible, Old Testament and New, is pride. Because pride is ego. Ego, self-sufficiency, self-centeredness. That is the absolute opposite of what it is to be dependent on God. That is that sense of, I'm fine, I'll take care of myself. And Jesus himself said that he didn't come looking for well men. Well men don't seek a physician. Prideful men, self-sufficient men, won't ever come looking for a savior. But people who know they need help, people who have genuine humility, people who recognize their dependence on God to get through a day, he says, that's wisdom. That's what it is to be intelligent about your relationship with God. Knowing that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The continuation of that wisdom is to let your fear of the Lord bring you to humility. So that you walk through your life in a way that recognizes that everything you have, everything you do is a result of God's goodness and grace to you rather than thinking, self-made man, I did all this, dig me. Over and over again, the Bible says, pride goes before a fall. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. 
But with the humble, there is wisdom. Verse 3 says, the integrity of the upright. The word integrity there means honesty, fairness, treating people justly. But it also means your internal sense of righteousness, of doing the right thing simply because it's the right thing. And that integrity of an upright person will then guide them through life. That becomes the standard by which you live. When you're faced with decisions, like I can do this or I can do this, the answer is always, which one of these two brings the greatest glory and honor to God? That's the way you would make your decisions because the second half of that verse says, but the falseness, the unfairness, the unjustness of the treacherous will destroy them. So now we're talking about righteous people who are upright, who are fair, who are just, who are described here as having integrity. And the other side of that pendulum is people who are treacherous, people who are out looking to do evil, to do harm, and their methodology is falseness, is lying. Look you in the eye and tell you untruths in order to get you hooked into their snare, into their trap. The integrity of the upright will guide them through life, but the falseness of the treacherous will destroy them. Riches, verse 4, do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. We looked at that verse a couple of weeks ago as we were talking about uh, riches and the emptiness of riches. But is there anything more obvious than Solomon saying, no matter how rich you are in this lifetime, no matter what you've accumulated in this lifetime, and remember, he was a very rich man. He was somebody who had accumulated a lot of stuff, but he also knew that he could not trust in his wealth, in his riches. He couldn't trust in his horses. He couldn't trust in his armies. In the end, he just had to trust God as his deliverance, as his shield, as his protection. And no matter how much you have, no matter how much you've accumulated in this life, death is the great equalizer. And when you die and stand before God and are judged, your riches don't help you. But notice, righteousness delivers from death. Now, that doesn't mean that righteous people never die. Obviously, what Solomon is saying here, since he's just spoken about wrath and then contrasted it with death, he's talking about eternal things here. He's talking about eternal life, which comes to the righteous and it delivers them from that second death that we read about in the book of Revelation. But no matter what you've accumulated in this life, if you've accumulated it through treachery, through taking advantage of other people, through having unjust weights, well, of course, that's tovah, And of course, then you're going to end up in the day of wrath, in the day of judgment. But righteousness delivers from death. So the righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way. Depending on your translations, it'll also say straighten the way. It doesn't mean like make the way ahead of you smooth so it's not rocky. 
It means it'll take the twists and turns out of it. Make your way straighter. Make your walk through this life more sensible. The righteousness of the blameless will straighten his path, smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. This is one of the realities that we see time and time again in the Bible and in life. Can anybody here think of somebody uh, that you've crossed paths with who was just plain no good? (laughs) That was quick. (laughs) Did you watch them fall? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just a fact that people will fall from their own wickedness. As I said a couple weeks ago, if you're going to be a good liar, you have to have a good memory. Because those lies are going to catch up with you. And those people who you thought you could depend on are all going to turn on you when they realize that you don't have their best interest at heart, that you're only involved in you, and that you're treacherous about your own ego and your own pride. That kind of person is bound to fall, but they fall as a result of their own wickedness. So the righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver him, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. So this whole section is talking about the benefits of walking uprightly, the benefits of treating people fairly, the benefits of walking in integrity. There are benefits like eternal life. There are benefits like it's going to deliver you. It's going to deliver you out of a trap. In a minute, he's going to say, when people talk about you, if you're truly righteous, you won't care about what they say about you because you know what the truth is. So there are great benefits to walking uprightly, to walking righteously through this life. For instance, verse 7, when a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish and the hope of a strong man perishes. A moment ago I said to you that death is the great equalizer. Well, that's what he's getting at here in verse 7. A wicked man If he has accumulated all of this wealth to himself, if he has accumulated strength to himself, but if he's done that through nefarious means, when he dies, that's no help to him. And all the things he hoped to do, that he planned to do, that all perishes. His expectations of what his life was going to be like, of his power, of his authority over other people, all of that ends When he dies, the hope of a strong man perishes. I mean, really, when you die, what do you got? You you got nothing you can take with you. You've got nothing that you can plead to God, but I did these good things. We know that. So if you spend your whole life cheating people, treating people unfairly, treating them with unjust weights, being treacherous against those people, 
treating people unfairly, not being righteous, not walking uprightly, then whatever it is you have planned, when you die, it ends. And no matter how much strength you had in this life, you got nothing when you stand before God. And all your wealth, all the strength that you had in this lifetime means nothing in the day of judgment. So then I will ask, since Solomon didn't, but it's implied in what he wrote, I'll ask you then, what's the benefit of the treachery of this life. There's not much benefit to it. There's only benefit to the uprightness and righteousness of this life. Because then God is going to smile on you. The result is going to be eternal life and pleasure from God. So that's not bad. Verse 8. The righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked take his place. When I read that, I thought immediately of the book of Esther. We've gone through the book of Esther here. We even went through it with noisemakers, you may recall. (laughs) The upright man, who was being treated unfairly, ended up being delivered, ended up being honored by the king, and the scaffold that Naaman built. Haman. Did I say Naaman? Okay. Well, that was his Naaman. The scaffold that Haman built, ultimately he was hung on. So the righteous is delivered from their trouble, but the wicked end up taking their place. With his mouth, a godless man destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge, the righteous man will be delivered. This is what I mentioned just a moment ago. That the godless man will try to destroy his neighbor by the things he says. He'll carry rumors. He'll carry secrets. He'll say bad things about him. He'll talk him down. Try to ruin his reputation. But your own righteousness and your knowledge, your wisdom in your righteousness is enough to deliver you out of the snares and the traps that he tries to set for you. Because you know the truth, and you're able to wait until the truth comes out. Here, let's see if we can make this a little more personal. Anybody know anybody that ever talked bad about you? We all know what it's like to have somebody spread rumors about us. And there are a couple ways that you can respond to that. You can defend yourself. But the more you defend yourself, at some point, the guiltier you sound. The more that you argue in favor of you, the more people might think, you know, you really protest too much. But the most satisfying way to end up being restored after somebody has torn you down, the most satisfying way is to let the truth finally come to light and people discover it themselves. Because, again, people who are being treacherous, people who are liars, those people are going to fail. They're going to fall of their own wickedness. And when they fall and when people see that fall, they're going to recognize not only that you were upright through it all, but that you maintained your integrity through it all. And that you didn't feel like you had to defend yourself constantly because your confidence, your faith was in God protecting you despite what you were going through. So Solomon, again, is saying that's what wisdom and humility is. 
is in your righteousness, in your uprightness. Don't worry about what people say about you because the mouth of a godless man will try to destroy his neighbor. Godless people are going to say all kinds of things about you. Most of them are going to write about you on Facebook and YouTube and do it in all capital letters. Oh, that's just me. I'm sorry. The stuff people say about me sometimes, I just, I can't believe how many people out there have said that I'm teaching the doctrine of devils because we're teaching what the Bible says about election and people don't like that. But we continue to walk, we continue to tell the truth, we continue to do the upright thing and rather than defend myself against these enemies who are talking against me, I just let them fall of their own weight and one by one they do all just fall away. The mouth of the godless man destroys his neighbor but through knowledge the righteous will be delivered. Verse 10 This is the beginning of Solomon now talking about not just the benefits of righteousness to you personally, but now that you being righteous and upright is good for the community. It's good for a city. It's good for the society to have upright people walking in it. When it goes well with the righteous, a city rejoices. And when the wicked perish... There is glad shouting. Okay, so there's kind of happiness either way. There's happiness when people meet and find upright people in their midst. When you find honest neighbors, honest people that you can deal with, honest people that you work with, when you have an honest boss, when you have honest leadership, it makes you feel good. It says here that it goes well with the righteous and then a city rejoices. The whole community is benefited from having upright, honest people in their midst. And on the other hand, when the wicked do fall, when the wicked finally do perish, well, then everybody's happy again. Everybody rejoices because the wicked man is out of their midst. Verse 11. By the blessing of the upright, a city is lifted up, is exalted. So it's good to have upright people in your midst because upright people are a blessing from God, they're receiving blessings from God, and that is good for a community of people. That is good for a society. But on the other hand, by the mouth of the wicked, the city's torn down. So people running around trying to destroy other people, talking bad about other people, that's just bad for a society. That tears at the very fabric of any culture, of any group of people. They can't last long together if they're ripping at each other, tearing at each other, saying terrible things about each other. But when the upright are in your midst, the blessings come to the upright and that benefits the whole community. By the blessings of the upright, a city is exalted or lifted up. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. He who despises his neighbor lacks good sense. If you have to live with people, if you're part of a community, part of a society, and you're 
despising them. By the way, in this context, talking about destroying people with their mouth. In a minute, he's going to talk about tail-bearing and gossip. When he says here that somebody despises his neighbor, apparently he's saying in their speech, in the things they say, in the rumors they spread. When he despises his neighbor, that's not smart. He lacks good sense, probably because that's eventually going to come back on him. Because after a while, people are going to figure out, I can't trust this guy. When I talk to this guy, he carries my stories to other people. He says things behind my back. You can't trust him. He's the kind of guy who you know isn't two-faced because if he was, he wouldn't wear that one. Never mind. He's the kind of guy who you know is talking behind your back. You know, I, I remember having a conversation with Steve. This will be a good example of what I'm talking about. He and I were talking in the back room, and he asked me about something that was going on with someone else in the congregation. And I said to him, Steve, I can't really tell you, because if I was willing to tell you about them, what are you going to assume I say about you when you're not here? I have to be wise, as he says here, and keep my mouth shut. A man of understanding stays silent. Don't be tail-bearing. Don't be spreading lies. Don't be spreading rumors. Don't be tearing people down. Watch what you say. Watch your mouth. By the mouth of the wicked, a city is torn down. If he despises his neighbors, he lacks sense. That's a senseless thing to do, but a man of understanding stays silent. And along the same lines, verse 13 he who goes about as a talebearer, as a gossip, will reveal secrets. So you tell somebody something in private. You tell somebody something in secret. You tell them because you think you can trust them. They've put on the air that they are your friend. You can definitely trust them with your innermost secrets. You've got to tell somebody. You're going to tell them. And then they're going to go and spread that. They're going to reveal those secrets, and that's going to be an embarrassment to you, but it's also going to show you what kind of person they are. So the second half of that verse says, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. If he hears something about somebody else, if somebody confides in him, he keeps that to himself. He who goes about as a tale-bearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Now, where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. There has to be steering. There has to be guidance. That word that is translated guidance there can just as easily be Steering, somebody has to steer the ship. Somebody has to be in charge of the way that things are going. And where there is nobody steering, where there's nobody driving, where there's nobody guiding, well, then people can't help but fall apart because they don't have any direction in what they're doing. Whether you're talking about a group as a church, whether you're talking about a group as a society, here I'll give you an example. Not that you asked for one. Quick, somebody asked for one. Give me an example, please. I will. I'll give you an example. Micah came to me a couple of years ago. How many years has it been now since men's group? About 
three, four years now that we've been having men's group. It's been a very successful group. Every other Tuesday, we meet together, we share with each other, we study the Bible together, just as men. And when he came to me and he said, can we have a men's group here at GCA? I said, well, you know, others have tried. Others have begun groups like that, and they fall of their own lack of direction. They just dissipate. They go away. They start. They start good. They start strong. But then they just kind of fade away because there's nobody driving. There's nobody in charge. If you got on an airplane and heard, this is the captain. I have no idea where we're headed. I'm not sure how to fly this thing, but I feel pretty good that if I pull this stick, we're going to go up. You're getting off the plane just as quickly as you can. So I said to Micah, you're going to have to treat it for what it is. It's a ministry. you got to come in every week and be prepared. you got to come in every week and show the rest of the men that somebody's driving. Somebody knows what's going on. Somebody has a plan. Somebody has studied in advance. And, you know, for the several years that we've been doing this, Micah has done that. He comes in and he knows exactly what passage we're looking at or what we're going to be sharing about that night. He always has the direction. And as a result, where other men's groups have failed at GCA through the years, this one has succeeded and continues to succeed. And it continues to succeed because of one simple thing. When we get here, we know who's driving. You know what it's like to end up in a group and then wait for somebody to tell you why you're there, what you're doing. And if nobody can tell you that, you're like, well, what are we doing here? I, I got stuff to do. I'm out of here. Well, that's essentially what Solomon is getting at here. Where there is no steering, where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in an abundance of counselors, in an abundance of people steering you, speaking into your life, giving you advice, giving you direction, well, then there's victory. Verse 15. We've read this before. Solomon has said something very much like this a few weeks ago. This seems to be a sticking point for Solomon. He who is surety for a stranger will surely suffer for it. In other words, he's saying, within the law, the Israelites are told that they are to share with other Israelites. They are to lend to other Israelites, and they're not to do it for usury. They're not to take any kind of interest off their loans to each other. But they are allowed to give loans to strangers from other countries and get usury for it. But now he says, if somebody takes a loan who is a stranger, not an Israelite, and in order to accomplish that loan, you become the surety for him. It's like being the co-signer, being the guarantor for the loan he takes. You're going to suffer for it. But he who hates going to surety is safe. Verse 16. This one verse stands by itself right here, but then it's, it's sort of thematic. Uh, Solomon's going to come back to it in just a few verses, talking about a gracious woman. And he's going to compare the gracious woman 
to a beautiful woman who lacks discretion, to a beautiful woman who doesn't have good manners, who doesn't have good understanding. So verse 16 says, a gracious woman attains honor and a violent man attains riches. So which one is better in Solomon's thinking? Obviously, he's saying a gracious woman, a kind woman, a giving, generous woman, she's going to attain honor, respect. People are going to recognize her as being a virtuous woman in their midst. And even if a violent man attains riches, but he does it through his chicanery, through cheating other people, if he does it through his treachery, what has he actually accomplished? He has no honor. He has nobody respecting him. So honor, in Solomon's thinking, respect of other people, is better than having all the money and nobody respects you. A violent man just attains riches. Verse 17, the merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself Harm. This is one of the ironic parts about cruel people. Cruel people think they're doing you harm. Cruel people are cruel to you because they think they're hurting you. Solomon says ultimately they're hurting themselves. And there's a benefit to being merciful. There's a benefit, by the way, look at verse 16 and 17, the words that are translated gracious and merciful. Those are God-type characteristics. A gracious woman, a merciful man, a merciful man who's good to other people actually ends up doing himself good. Before we get out of this chapter, he's going to say somebody who gives to other people, translated scattered here, somebody who scatters what he has actually ends up enriching himself. So the more that you are good to other people, the more that you benefit other people, the more it comes back to you, the more you benefit yourself. And I'm here to tell you at this point in my life that I have experienced that and witnessed that over and over and over again. Have you ever been good to somebody just because you were being good to somebody? Have you ever had that somebody you were good to go out and speak well of you afterwards or build up a good reputation for you, or even later on when you needed somebody to come alongside, they're the one that comes alongside. There are many ways in which you're benefited by being merciful to other people. The merciful man does himself good. The cruel man does himself harm. Verse 18, the wicked earns deceptive wages. He doesn't mean that his paycheck has gotten through deception. What he means is the things that he ends up earning are deceptive. He's cruel. And ultimately, his cruelty is going to gain him wages. And he, he originally thinks that what he's accomplishing through his cruelty, through his treachery, is enriching himself, that he's doing good by himself. But because through a man's own cruelty, He's going to be brought down. Well, then the wages that he thinks he's earning are deceiving him into thinking that they're a benefit when, in fact, they're to his harm. 
The wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows or plants righteousness gets a true reward, a genuine reward. If you're righteous for righteousness sake, if you're merciful to people, if you're gracious to people, that's going to come back and benefit you ultimately And you're going to get a reward from God as well. That's a reward that doesn't fade away. So that becomes the true, genuine reward as opposed to the deceptive reward that evil men get. That takes us to verse 19. He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life. And he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. That again, I think, is like the earlier verses where death and life were being contrasted by Solomon. And I don't think he was just talking about physical life and death because everybody alive eventually dies. Even if you're righteous, you eventually die physically. I think he's talking about ultimate rewards here. He's talking about ultimate life, ultimate death. And it's just a fact of life that if you're steadfast in your righteousness, that attains to life. And he who pursues evil is obviously not wise. He knows nothing about the fear of God. Ultimately, he's bringing about his own death. So even though in this lifetime, it looks like the evil man, the unjust man, the man who is constantly pursuing the things that enrich himself, even though it can look like he's attaining power, authority, riches in this lifetime, what he's really accumulating to himself is ultimately judgment from God. So is he really accumulating anything of any value? Because death, as I keep saying, is the great equalizer. Verse 20. The perverted in their heart, the perverse in their heart, the ones who are set on doing evil in their heart... Are Tohavah, are an abomination to the Lord. But the blameless, the upright, the righteous, their walk is his delight. He's pleased with them because they are living after the course of what they know to be true, what they know to be right, what they've seen in the word of God, what they know about the character of God, what they know about God's holiness. That becomes their inspiration to walk uprightly and to treat people fairly. And God delights in that. Verse 21. Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished. But the descendants of the righteous are delivered. I find that really interesting because he didn't just say the righteous will be delivered. He said the descendants of the righteous are going to be delivered. In other words, the reputation that you're establishing right here and right now, the lifestyle that you're establishing now, your benefits to the society, the community of people around you right now is going to have lasting effects even after you're gone. It's going to have beneficial effects to your family. Now, in a few minutes before we're done with this chapter, he's going to talk about people who cheat their own family. And then what do they inherit? Come on, you know the movie title. They inherit the wind. That's where that movie title comes from. It's from Solomon's writing. In other words, 
If you're upright, if you're just in this lifetime, the benefits of your upright and just life are going to be passed down and are going to benefit your children and your children's children because of the reputation that you've brought to your family. But if you try to destroy your family from within, you're going to gain nothing. You're going to inherit nothing but wind. Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. Now, verse 22, I find kind of humorous. It's the talk about the beautiful woman who lacks discretion, which I mentioned earlier when we were looking at verse 16. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout. I almost didn't get that one out. I know. As a gold ring in a swine's snout. What does that mean? It means you take a gold ring, something really beautiful, something really precious, something really expensive, and you say, what shall I do with this gold ring so that it's properly displayed, so that everyone can admire this gold ring? You're not going to put it in the nose of a pig. That would be the wrong place to put that gold ring. Because the pig is going to go wallow in the mire and the gold's going to get all muddy. And the, so putting a gold ring in the snout of a pig makes no real sense. But then he compares that to a beautiful woman, that would be the gold ring, who lacks discretion, who doesn't know how to properly conduct herself, who doesn't know how to be modest in her community. Someone who's like that is like a gold ring in a pig's nose. I like Solomon's humor. <laughs> Verse 23 says, The desire of the righteous is only for good. Righteous people want righteous things. Righteous people want good stuff. Righteous people who have the fear of the Lord ultimately want what the Lord wants. Ultimately, we pray, your will be done. Jesus said we're supposed to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want the things of God. Ultimately, we want God's glory. We want God to be lifted up. We want to see Christ exalted. The desire of the righteous is only good. But the expectation of the wicked is wrath. So, the desire of the righteous, the expectation of the righteous, results in the good. I mean, for heaven's sakes, it results in the new Jerusalem. It doesn't get much better than that. The end result of our righteousness is our desire for all things godly. But the expectation, the looking forward, the desire of the wicked, is going to result in wrath. Now, starting at verse 24, until the end of this chapter, now we get into the third portion of this chapter, and this portion is about generosity. If you're a kind and a just person, if you're a gracious person, if you're a merciful person, then you're also going to be a generous person. You're not going to cheat people, therefore you're going to treat people the way that God would have them properly being treated, if that was indeed a sentence. There is one who scatters. What that means is there is one who has, and then he casts it abroad. 
He doesn't hold on to it. Remember last week we saw Solomon say that God gives riches and that it's a blessing that you get those riches. I was saying last week that there's no price to pay for the good things that God brings into your life. And now Solomon is saying, but when you hold on to those things, hold on to them with an open hand. Don't clutch at the things that God has given you. Don't store them up for just you. Instead, be generous with the things that God has kindly given you. The one who scatters, the one who takes his stuff and gives it freely, the one who is generous that one yet increases all the more. In other words, if God knows that you're going to be good, kind, righteous, just, generous with the things he has given you, he's going to keep giving it to you. He's going to keep providing for you because he knows that you are honoring him with the things he has given you. The generous man is going to be prosperous. That's what verse 25 says. Look at those two Verses, those two first lines compared to each other. There's one who scatters and yet increases all the more. In verse 25, he says the generous man is going to be prosperous. So Solomon sees a principle in the way that people hold on to the things that God gives them. If you clutch to them, if you hold on to them in a greedy way, well, then the second half of verse 24 is true of you, which is, there is one who withholds what is justly due, and it results only in want. So if you owe somebody, if somebody has worked for you, if you owe somebody a wage, and yet you're being greedy, and you don't give them what is justly due to them, if you're not generous to people who are in need when you have the ability to take care of that need for them, well, that's going to result in you yourself becoming poor. That's going to result in you having greater want. A generous man is going to be prosperous. The second half of verse 25 says, and he who waters will himself be watered. What does that mean? It's a gardening terminology. If you go out and water things so that they grow, God's going to do the same thing for you. He's going to water you. He's going to make you have abundance. He's going to give you good fruit. And that good fruit is going to feed many, as Solomon has already told us. So let's put those two verses together. Starting at verse 24, there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, but it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, in other words, if you've got food and other people need the food, but you withhold it from them, the people will curse him because they know he's got what they need and he's not generous enough to even sell it to them. The second half of the verse says, but blessing will be on the one on the head of him who sells it. If you've got an abundance of something, and people need that something to survive. If you just keep it to yourself, if you hoard it all to yourself, look at everybody else and go, well, that's too bad for you. I got plenty. 
Well, it is God who ultimately gave you that plenty. And the result is going to be that you yourself will be cursed. But a blessing will be on the head of him who sells it, who distributes it, who puts it out there. Verse 27. He who diligently seeks good seeks favor. But he who searches after evil, it will come to him. He who trusts in his riches, says verse 28, is going to fail. But the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So you're going to trust in something. You're either going to trust in your riches, which people commonly do. Jesus talked about it, the man who had full barns, so he had to build larger barns and larger storage and silos so that he could say, my soul, take rest. I'm rich, I'm in need of nothing. And Jesus says, you fool, tonight your soul's going to be required of you. And what is a man going to give in exchange for his soul? Now Solomon's getting after the same thing here. He who trusts in his riches is going to fall. Because the riches of this world can't ultimately save you. Death, as I keep saying, is the great equalizer. And then you're going to stand in front of God. And then what are you going to have? What are you going to plead? What are you going to say on your own behalf that's going to convince him if through your whole life you have treated people unkindly, unfairly, if everything that you've had the good pleasure of having in this life you've kept to yourself, if you haven't helped people in need, if you've been evil to people, what, what do you expect to have happen? Your riches aren't going to help you in the day of wrath. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish. When they come in front of God, when they come in front of the judgment, then they're going to flourish because God is going to give them eternal life. Verse 29, we're almost done. He who troubles his own house. In other words, it's one thing for somebody to cause trouble for his neighbor. It's one thing for somebody to talk bad about and carry rumors about his neighbor. But if he does it to his own household, his own family, that's even worse. He who troubles his own house will inherit nothing. He'll inherit the wind. When it's all said and done, you're not going to be the one who ends up with anything. I'm not really sure what just happened But as I was reading that, the whole Tillman family was laughing at each other. So I'm thinking at that very moment, somebody got written out of the will. I'm I'm not sure, but he who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. And the foolish, that foolish person who should be the one that inherits, the one who should be over all the servants, that foolish one will end up being servant to the one who was wise-hearted. Because the one who was wise-hearted is going to keep his family through generations. He's going to keep their secrets. He's going to protect them by his uprightness in the way that he walks. And the foolish one is going to end up servant to him. So the fruit of the righteous, the speech, the things that they know, the knowledge that they're going to spread, the fruit of the righteous is like a tree of life. People are going to eat from that fruit. They're going to benefit from that fruit. It's going to make them wiser. It's going to make them stronger. The fruit of the righteous is like a tree of life. 
And he who is wise, the NASB says, wins souls. This verse was used when the soul winners campaigns was a big thing. Are you familiar with the soul winning sort of Pentecostals out there who believed that if they just evangelized according to a particular method that they would win souls and they would say the one who wins souls is wise. It's not at all what Solomon is actually talking about, especially when you look at the larger context. But what he's saying is the one who is wise attracts. The word can also be takes souls. People are attracted to the one who is wise because there's fruit of righteousness that's like a tree of life. He is a benefit to other people. He's not tearing down or destroying other people. He's trustworthy. He's generous. He's somebody who you know is going to carry you through the hardest of times. He's somebody who is going to attract souls to himself. And finally, verse 31. If the righteous will be rewarded on the earth, which obviously Solomon has just said, all these benefits are going to accrue to you. If you're upright, if you're righteous, it's going to benefit you in all these different ways. It's going to benefit your family and the larger society. It's going to benefit yourself. And if the righteous are going to be rewarded here on the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. It means that ultimately God is going to balance those scales as we walk through this lifetime. There's even songs that we sing about it that we see others gone on before us, never molested though in the wrong. And farther along we'll know more about it. We'll understand it later on. In this lifetime, we see evil people who seem to be getting ahead. And so it's easy to start thinking, well, then, what's the point of walking upright? What's the point of doing the right thing? I mean, I've got a choice between doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing. When people do the wrong thing, they seem to come out ahead in this world. But never forget that this world is under the, the influence of the prince of the power of the air. So it's no surprise that in this world, evil people seem to be getting ahead. But Solomon keeps saying, maintain your integrity, be kind to people, be gracious to people, walk uprightly, and you're going to be rewarded, you're going to be blessed, and that ultimate reward is when you die and stand before God, you're going to have the blessing of life, where they are finally going to have Death. They're finally going to have the wrath of God. They're finally going to be treated for what they've done in this lifetime. So this world, this life is not the end. This life and what you see around you in this cosmos in which we live right now is not the end. This is a world full of evil-hearted, wicked people doing what their wicked hearts want to do. You, according to Solomon, you who have the wisdom of God, you walk upright. In other words, the phrase I've used over and over again, I keep saying, if the whole world apostatizes, if the whole world goes away, you be the Christian. Same idea Solomon's getting at. Even as the unjust continue to be unjust because they can't be anything but unjust, you continue to walk in your integrity because there are great blessings as a result. Got it? Did you enjoy that chapter? Yes, sir. Okay, good. Any questions? We are good? All right. Then say good night 
Let's see, what have I been told? I can't call them internet congregation. I can't call them internet people. Folks, I used to say, say goodbye to the internet folks. And I had somebody write to me this week again and say, you know, I liked it back when you just called us folks. <laughs> say goodbye to the internet folks. Bye, Bye folks. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.